Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the night of the 29th of September, 1847, a month after William Francis King tried and failed to walk 192 miles around Maitland Racecourse in 48 hours non-stop. This evening, Australia's celebrated eccentric pedestrian, who's taken to billing himself as the ladies walking flying pieman, is in Maitland Town, spruiking his rematch against distance and time. His mighty challenge is due to commence tomorrow morning. He'll do it this time, he says, as he spent much of the last month in training. But townspeople know that's an exaggeration. The truth is, he's been working as a hotel waiter and spending many hours doing what he's doing right now, roaming around Maitland and talking about walking. Originally, the Flying Pieman planned his rematch for the 22nd of September, but he rescheduled because he wasn't ready. Now, he reckons he's set. Yet, a few locals aren't convinced and they take to taunting William, claiming that he's going to call off the challenge because he's afraid to fail again. That decides it. No one calls the Flying Pieman a coward. He says he'll start right now. Followed by the crowd, William walks to the race course. There, a tent's thrown up for the three men who are going to work in shifts to monitor his time, his distance, and to provide him with tea, coffee and eggs from a fire they'll keep burning. Spectators gather on the racecourse, and at 10 o'clock, the signal is given. The flying pieman, he's off and walking, determined that 48 hours from now, he's going to have death or glory. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second part of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's first sporting hero, the Flying Pieman. 
By 10 o'clock on Wednesday morning, 12 hours in, William had covered 66 and a half miles. This was an average speed of five and a half miles per hour. Now he slowed down, not because he was fatigued or footsore, but so he could take his breakfast from the tray slung around his neck. The flying pieman also drank cups of tea, refilled by a man who followed him around the track with a pot. That evening, a massive thunderstorm slowed him for a while, but by 10 o'clock that night, he'd walked 102 miles. That was eight miles off his previous pace. 92 miles and 24 hours to go. The flying pieman's feet were again tender, but his spirits? As Bell's Life newspaper reported, he was, quote, full of life and animation, talking incessantly. An hour or so after dawn, the flying pieman had passed 140 miles, which was as far as he'd gotten last time before having to give up. By 10 that Thursday morning, 36 hours in, he'd made 157 miles, and the flying pieman showed no signs of fading. Rather, as a show of confidence and power, he picked up a child and carried this kid around the track. With a 48-hour deadline looming, a big crowd gathered. People carried lanterns and banners, and the night air was filled with the music of a band. Around quarter past eight, the flying pieman did his second last lap of the course at a leisurely three and a half miles an hour that allowed his friends and fans to walk alongside him. Then, as he started on the last lap, the whole crowd joined him for a procession. Now, the flying pieman sped up to six miles per hour, creating a comic spectacle as people struggled to keep pace. As Bell's Life reported, he was, quote, Making most of his admirers run, the band dropping behind until they had to cease playing and run after their man when they commenced again. The flying pieman now went even faster. Walking at eight miles per hour, to tremendous cheering, the waving of banners and the firing of guns, he crossed the finish line at 8.30pm. The flying pieman had done it. 192 miles in 46 and a half hours. That was 90 minutes faster than he'd promised, and that worried him a little because Welshers might argue that the wording of the wager had promised he'd walk non-stop for 48 hours. So, not taking any chances, the flying pieman didn't stop. He kept walking until 10 o'clock. When the 48 hours were up, this additional walking and other detours he'd taken during the past two days meant he'd walked 196 to 200 miles. A good way to imagine his achievement is to picture yourself just inside the fence at the MCG, which has been stripped of soft turf and is instead surfaced with rough dirt. Put yourself in the flying pieman's shoes by taking off your fancy shock-absorbing sneakers and pulling on a pair of knee-high leather boots. Remove your breathable high-tech sportswear and don a pair of trousers and a collared shirt. Remove from your refreshment table any high-energy snacks and electrolyte concoctions and replace them with tea, coffee and boiled eggs you'll consume as needed from your tin meal tray. Alright, ready? Start walking. Once around the MCG is 474 metres. One lap down and you've got 665 laps to go to reach 
196 miles, which was the minimum distance the Flying Pieman covered. Now, remember, there's no stopping, not for a moment. Two days later, assuming you've made it, what do you do apart from collapse in a heap? That night in Maitland, the Flying Pieman might have been expected to ease himself onto a stretcher so his friends could carry him to his hotel room for a well-deserved rest. Instead, William went to the Maitland Inn where he made an energetic speech to his fans. After that, he went to the Northumberland Hotel for another spell of oratory. From there to the Fitzroy Hotel where, after midnight, he delivered what Bell's life called, quote, a third flow of eloquence. In this mood of euphoria, the flying pieman barely slept that night, yet on Friday he was reported to be as cheerful and as active as ever. Decorating himself and a horse cart with ribbons, he called on friends up and down Maitland's main street and then went to the race course to give another speech to a crowd that had assembled. Bell's life thought his achievement was wonderful. Quote, we believe this feat has no parallel in the annals of pedestrianism. It seems to us to throw into the shade Captain Barclay's 1,000 miles in 1,000 hours. With Australian nationalism then nascent, this was a proud accomplishment. A colonial had done something better than a British hero. Bell's life marvelled that the Flying Pieman had averaged more than four miles per hour. The report continued, quote, for speed and endurance combined, we should say the ladies' flying pieman has fully established his claim to the championship of the world. William's feats were lauded in colonial papers from Hobart Town to Moreton Bay, and six months later, news would reach London and be published there. As proud as Bell's life was, they also hoped the flying pieman would, quote, retire on his laurels and never undertake such a task again, at least until some other flyer has eclipsed it. The flying pieman? Retire? Not a chance. Not when Maitland loved him so much. On the 27th of October, he wrote to Bell's life to announce his next challenge. He would walk 1,000 quarters of a mile in 1,000 quarters of an hour. He urged everyone to back him, and in a joking postscript, advised the newspaper's editor to bet the paper's printing presses, its rollers, and even its apprentices. Here's how he signed off. I remain, gentlemen, your determined winner. Pies, all hot as love. As we heard in part one, Captain Barclay's epic 1,000 miles in 1,000 hours had given him 90 minutes rest every alternate hour. But for his 1,000 quarter miles in 1,000 quarter hours, which we can also understand as 250 miles in 250 hours, the Flying Pieman was going to cover one quarter of a mile, that is 440 yards, every 15 minutes. But he wasn't going to top and tail as had Captain Barclay. He was going to start each quarter mile in the middle of each quarter hour. So, for example, if he could cover that 440 yards at a rate of 5 miles an hour, he'd have the quarter mile done in 3 minutes. That'd give him just 12 minutes until he started again. Of course, if he slowed as exhaustion set in, his rest periods would get shorter and shorter. On the morning of Monday the 8th of November, 
behind the Fitzroy Hotel in West Maitland, the flying Bahaiman staked out his walking ground. At one end, he set up his tent. At the other, atop a pile of bricks, he planted a tall pole, on which were reminders of the stakes, a little wooden coffin, and a flag bearing his standard, death or glory. Attended by his timekeeping helpers, the flying pieman started at six o'clock that morning. He walked from his tent to his flag and coffin, which he rounded before returning and resting. One lap down, 999 to go. That day, the flying pieman walked the course at a pace that varied between three and six miles per hour. The Maitland Mercury's reporter came to see him the next evening, some 36 hours into his trek. Quote, We found him talking away in the intervals, full of spirits and confident that he should accomplish the task. We confess that it appears to us next to impossible that human nature can sustain the mere fatigue of keeping awake for 10 days and nights, to say nothing of the distance walked, for the intervals in which it is possible to take sleep are so short that before a man could be well in the land of dreams, he must start again. The flying pieman rattled along well until the evening of the fifth day, when it looked like he was succumbing to exhaustion. A report in Bell's Life spoke of this being reversed suddenly. Quote, An almost immediate reaction, however, took place, and from that period until the night of the ninth day, King never flagged. How this reversal was achieved wasn't explained. Did he have some form of stimulant, like cocoa leaves, to chew? It is possible, but I'm more inclined to think he relied on coffees and reached deep down into whatever drove him. When the Flying Pieman flagged on that ninth night, the Tuesday, the 16th of November, every time he went to his tent, he fell into a deep and exhausted sleep. William had already authorised his helpers to use an unusual stimulant to wake him up. That was a horsewhip. Several times when so struck, the Flying Pieman came up in a fighting stance, and on one occasion, he threw a helper and the whip from the tent uttering a string of curses. On Wednesday, the Maitland Mercury found him walking vigorously and looking well. That night, he roused easily from sleep. On Thursday morning, he looked in fine form and his voice was strong and clear. At four o'clock that afternoon, the flying pieman walked the last quarter of a mile at a brisk six miles an hour. He'd done it, walking 1,000 quarter miles in 1,000 quarter hours. In other words, 250 miles in 250 hours. Bell's Life reported, quote, Shortly after finishing, the pieman mounted on a table and favoured his numerous visitors with a speech of some length, delivered with his usual energy. Despite what Maitland had seen of his strength over the past two months, there were rumours he'd been found asleep on the track on either the third or fourth night. So, the flying pieman asked the crowd if anyone wanted to ask him any questions, as in, confront him with these allegations. No one did, and the Maitland Mercury reported his timekeepers vouched that his feet had been all above board. Perhaps the best indication that no one seriously doubted William came from this part of the Mercury's article. Quote, He offered to lay a wager of £50 to £40 that he would do the same feat again, commencing that very evening. 
No person taking him up, the pieman offered other wages, but they were none of them taken, although several persons offered to back him in them. Maybe Maitland people didn't think they could win. Maybe they didn't think they'd win if he died trying. The Flying Pieman's next feat in Maitland on the green behind the Fitzroy Hotel came on the 27th of December, and it was a routine hit tour for the next six months, offering it to audiences with only minor variations. In 90 minutes, of which only a few were allotted for rest, he had to run a mile, walk a mile, wheel a wheelbarrow half a mile, pull a horse cart with a woman in it half a mile, walk backwards half a mile, pick up 50 stones placed one yard apart, and perform 50 leaps over bars set two feet off the ground and spaced 10 yards apart. With such a variety of tasks, there was no certainty he could pull it off, and so a big crowd gathered and lots of bets were made. The Flying Pieman did it all, with 45 seconds to spare, and then of course delivered another of his energetic speeches. William then moved on to Dungog, arriving in time for the New Year's Day races and performing a similar routine. His feats included doing the 55 stones placed a yard apart in 14 minutes. When he went to do the leaps, this time 62 over bars two and a half feet high set 10 yards apart, he did so in what the Maitland Mercury called gallant style, despite being crowded because, quote, the attendance being great and the novelty of the scene being so strange, he had barely fair play. Then the rain set in, and this put an end to his performance. The rain got heavier, meaning he was stuck in Dungog for the time being. This, the Maitland Mercury reported, quote, appears to much mortify him on account of an arrangement to attend at Patrick Plains, that being an early name for the town that would officially be known as Singleton. In Dungog, on the evening of the 8th of January, there was a break in the rain, so the Flying Pieman tried to perform his feats for the townspeople, but as we'll hear, he was battling muddy conditions. His voice comes through in a report about this in Bell's Life on the 22nd of January, 1848. Though written in the third person, the charming, amusing grandiloquence of this article matches what we heard from him in that court appearance in 1844. For starters, he appeared to have come around to Dungog and didn't feel like leaving, perhaps because he was enamoured of at least half of the population. Quote, the charming appearance of the fields, the courtesy shown him by the inhabitants, and the smiling countenances of the fair part of the community who, like busy bees, improve each shining hour by rising almost with the sun and may be seen with blooming rosy cheeks collecting their sweets from the field, the gardens, and the stockyards. For these beauties, quote, the pieman made a few pies the other morning in his first-rate style, and the ladies acknowledged them the most palatable that ever saluted their lips. William recounted how on that muddy evening he'd tried to perform his promised feats. While running backwards, he'd fallen. Quote, what did the people of Dungog behold? Why, the champion of the world on the broad of his back, with hessian boots, milky white drawers, red silk jacket, and black velvet cap, insulting the earth by placing his posterior to her beautiful face, amid the sighs of the assembled multitude. He continued, But the champion, rising from his cushion of clay, humorously addressed the people, and requested them not to lament the circumstance, quote, 
since it was recorded that Philip of Macedon fell, not in the dirt, but in the dust, and on seeing his impression in the sand, exclaimed, Oh, what a small space does a man fill in this universe. Still, Philip was a king after his fall, and the lady's walking flying pieman, notwithstanding the fall, is champion of the world still. Having picked himself up and made his speech where again he compared himself to one of history's most famous characters, the flying pieman further entertained the crowd by carrying a live goat weighing 80 pounds for one and a half miles in 12 minutes. This went over big with the Dungog spectators, not least because the goat struggled and protested loudly. Next time the flying pieman did the routine in town, he carried an 80 pound girl who was more amenable to being a stunt prop. Even though the rain stopped, William stayed in Dungog and seemingly enjoyed life. On the morning of Tuesday the 7th of February, for a wager of 20 pounds, he readied himself for his next epic challenge. Starting at noon, he was going to walk 500 half miles in 500 consecutive half hours, starting each time in the middle of the half hour. The Maitland Mercury reported the champion wasn't inspiring his usual confidence. Quote, Bets are in favour of time, the pieman having become so corpulent since his arrival at Dungog. Perhaps he'd been eating too many of his own pies. While his extra weight might slow him down, William's spirits would be raised by his walking companion, a dog called Faithful. When the clock struck 12 that Monday, the flying pieman and this mutt started walking a half-mile course that extended from the Union Inn and around the village. The Maitland Mercury dropped in, quote, On the fourth day, he seemed much fatigued and it was thought it was impossible for him to continue to walk two hours longer. Claiming to be an aristocratic squatter, but giving himself away with his literary tics, the flying pieman was to write a long, very long third-person account of this walk that appeared in Bell's life. This letter detailed how he hadn't slept at all for the first four nights and when his feet threatened to get too sore, he bathed them in salt water and brandy, rubbed them with wax, wrapped them in linen and put on socks and stockings before donning a pair of women's lace-up cloth boots over which he wore big clogs. This worked with the Maitland Mercury saying on the morning of the seventh day he was, quote, brisk as a bee. In case anyone in Dungog suspected he might be sneaking sleep, the flying pieman banged heavily on a drum every hour on the hour, which must have been supremely annoying night after night. If that wasn't enough, he kept himself going by shouting mantra-style rhymes through the streets of Dungog. Here's how one started, quote, I won't be beat, I won't be beat, I shan't be beat, I can't be beat, I'm sure I can perform the feat. This verse, printed in Bell's life, went on and on, saying his legs were worth £10,000 and if he died in this attempt, the sorrowful ladies of Dungog would carry him to the town's burial grounds. On the 10th night, with victory less than 24 hours away, William's dog Faithful proved unworthy of the name and was too worn out to continue. Leaving no mutt behind, the flying pieman carried the dog through the night. Exactly when he finished the 250 miles wasn't reported independently. 
The Flying Pieman's own account said it at quarter past 12 in the afternoon, which would have meant he'd done 250 miles in 240 hours. He wrote that a band played and that he kept walking around Dungog for another 16 hours with his pole, flag and coffin, and again offered to repeat the task immediately, but no one would bet against him. Not that he was doing it for the money, because as he said in the Bell's Life letter, his real reason for performing his extraordinary pedestrian feat was, quote, in order to enliven the hearts of the blooming fair and dark sex of the township and the visiting fair and dark lovely squatter's daughters and healthy chubby-faced sprightly old dames. So how much of a ladies' man was the ladies' flying walking pieman really? We don't know. We do know that at this time he was a good-looking rooster who had a flashy dress sense and a charming way with words. He may very well have had a girl in every town, though, as we'll see, he was eventually unlucky in love. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From Dungog, the flying pieman made his way to Patrick Plains as promised, where he staged several performances for delighted crowds, including picking up 300 stones set a yard apart, a distance it was said of 51 and one quarter miles in nine hours and 50 minutes. The Maitland Mercury reported on the 27th of May 1848, quote, after accomplishing his self-appointed task, he gave a long specimen of his eloquence to a crowd of boys and men who occasionally cheered him. By the end of August, the Flying Pieman was in Queensland, with the Moreton Bay Courier reporting, quote, The dull monotony of our town was today a little enlivened by W.F. King, the celebrated ladies walking, flying, jumping, running, etc. Pieman. Speaking to the Moreton Bay Courier, he said after entertaining Brisbane, he planned to walk onwards to Adelaide and then to Perth before returning to Maitland where he'd retire once he'd smashed Captain Barclay's now nearly 40-year-old record by walking 2,000 miles in 1,000 hours. Queensland's first taste of his superhuman abilities came when the Flying Pieman raced the coach from Brisbane to Ipswich paced by locals on horseback. This was a distance of 28 miles. Granted, the coach did have to stop to let passengers on and off, but the flying pieman, he also had a handicap. He was carrying a carriage pole that weighed 100 pounds. The flying pieman won, depending on the report, by 15 minutes or an hour. Reaching Ipswich, he delivered copies of the Moreton Bay Courier to townsfolk who were delighted to get it so early. True to form, he kept walking and talking the whole time he was in town, selling treats from his tray, and then at 6 o'clock he struck out back for Brisbane. The Moreton Bay Courier reporting his daily distance quote could not have been less than 70 miles in 16 hours, but this he designated as a mere stroll. 
A mere stroll maybe, but as you can imagine, William went through boots fairly often. So he announced that if a public subscription was raised to buy him a new pair, he'd take on a challenge that had beaten even that most celebrated pedestrian, Captain Barclay. He announced it thus in the Moreton Bay Courier, quote, Pedestrianism, question to the public, how many miles shall I have to walk, being engaged to wind, while walking, a piece of common tape around a pitchfork handle of one and a half inch diameter, the tape being 100 yards in length? He didn't give the answer then, but he'd later put that distance at 50 miles, which was a mere trifle, unless he planned to undertake it in a ridiculously short time. Yet the flying pieman didn't do it at all, not showing up at the appointed time, presumably having gotten himself a pair of boots elsewhere. When William had talked to the Moreton Bay Courier, he said he'd hoped to meet, as the paper put it, quote, a damsel duly qualified to enable him to have an heir to perpetuate the memory of the pedestrian champion of the world. His next challenge, announced in October, seemed geared to this. The Flying Pieman promoted himself as doing a series of walking, running, hopping and other stunts in various places around Brisbane so that no one would miss out on seeing him and get jealous. A report in the Sydney Morning Herald read, quote, He first intends to walk in the favour of the ladies at Kangaroo Point, then cross the river to North Brisbane and jump into the good graces of the fair sex in that locality, and after winning their smiles and small change, again cross the river. Despite doing what sounded like his damnedest, William didn't find his damsel in Brisbane. In April 1849, he reported to Bell's Life that he'd walked 3,000 miles in the past eight months, including most of the way back to Sydney, where he'd arrived to defend the honour of two young ladies who'd been, quote, grossly insulted by an aristocratical jackaroo squatter. William said it was his duty to do this because, after all, he was the, quote, publicly acknowledged ladies walking flying pieman, the ladies determined valiant protecting fighting hero and charming females gallant man until death, few men being more deserving of the female sex than the brave or sober-minded or true-loving industrious honest men who decidedly deserve the fair and dark good womankind, God bless them all, and Our Lady Queen Victoria of noble Britain's land. While there's an underlying loneliness in this loggeria, there is no record of William actually defending anyone's honour in Sydney at this time. Maybe he did. Maybe it was just how he saw himself. In May 1849, the Flying Pieman was scheduled to do his routine during the three-day Homebush Racing Carnival, an event attended by so many that Sydney streets were said to be empty. William's show planned for the second day of the carnival, didn't come off. In a big newspaper advertisement, the Flying Pieman claimed he'd been prevented from performing his feats because the police had intervened. The Flying Pieman said he'd now rescheduled at the same venue where he'd be presented with a silver cup and a small purse by the stewards as a token of their appreciation for his many pedestrian achievements. There's no available newspaper record of whether this came off for him. The Flying Pieman wrote to Bell's Life in early June 1849 saying, in typically grandiloquent style, that if God let him live a few years longer, he was determined to do everything Captain Barclay had. But first, 
Provided Bell's readers and others would back him, he was going to attempt that winding tape challenge that had beaten Captain Barclay, and he was going to do it on a mind-boggling scale. So, while walking, he'd wind that 100-yard piece of strong tape around a pitchfork handle of one and a half inches diameter that had been planted firmly in the middle of a field. The first time, he'd have to walk a circle with a circumference of 628 yards to wind the tape once, reducing its length by one and a half inches. The next lap would be only one-third of a yard shorter. In all, he'd walk 2,880 circles until the tape was fully wound around the handle. Then, he'd unwind it in the same manner. Then he'd do this winding and unwinding another four times. The Flying Pieman had calculated the distance to be 500 miles, which he said he'd do in 144 hours. It was an epic challenge, quote, in the performance of which the noble Scotchman Captain Barclay fell to the ground. Not so with the lady's gallant pieman, all hot as love and champion walking pedestrian of the world, who means to stand his ground like a true fighting cock. Nothing came of it, perhaps because no one would bet against him. In May 1850, the flying pieman was doing his routine for the people of Hexham near Newcastle. William wasn't just there to entertain, he also wanted to educate. At this time, Australia's gold rush hadn't begun, but Californias had, and men from all over the world were flocking there, including those from New South Wales who were leaving behind wives and children. William had an idea of what to do about these California widows and orphans, as they were called, and he wanted to give a lecture on the subject at the Victoria Theatre in Hexham. Here, we get another sample of his idiosyncratic ways. Rather than start his letter to the venue's owner with a simple, Dear Sir, before explaining his proposal, he began this way, quote, To Joseph Wyatt, proprietor of Recreation Mansion, Victoria Theatre, of athletical, diverting, useful, intelligent, moral, sentimental, and gratifying amusement for the benefit of each and all classes of society throughout the land of creditably, morally, and even religiously inhabited New South Wales. Dear, most noble public gratifier, dear Mr. Joseph Wyatt. Rather than say he had an idea, William wrote, quote, a thought has just struck the needle conductor of my knowledge box cranium. What was happening in that knowledge box cranium? He didn't say in the letter, though he promised his lecture would offer, quote, his soul's sacred conscientious opinion and advice on what to do about chaps feeding themselves into the, quote, destructive wide open mouth of alarming, cruel, sharp, biting teeth disease creating San Francisco, California. To hear his full proposal, you'd have to turn up to his two-hour lectures at the Victoria Theatre. The first of these would start at 6 in the morning, with the second commencing at 10am. Door takings, he said, would go in aid of the distressed wives and children, and all he asked in return was a cup of tea and a wing of fowl. There's no record of whether these lectures went ahead. If they had, and someone had written them down, the content would have filled entire newspapers. In fact, this was the very reason that the previous year, the usually indulgent Bell's life had given for not publishing one of the Flying Pieman's missives. For much of the 1840s, William Francis King's feats had been regularly reported in the newspapers. 
Yet for almost five years from May 1850, he all but vanished from the colony's press. The Flying Pieman was reported preparing to do his routine back at Maitland Racecourse in December 1850, and he popped up in August 1852 at the Beardy Plains races west of Grafton. But that was it. Why had he vanished? Australia's own gold rushes had begun. And it's amusing, given William had railed against men striking out for California, that when he reappeared in Sydney in March 1855, the People's Advocate, a New South Wales Vindicator newspaper, reported he'd been absent because he'd been traversing the country looking for a gold mine. It doesn't seem that he'd struck it rich because he was back in Sydney to attempt that most difficult of all sporting feats, the comeback. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the second instalment of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's first sporting hero, the Flying Pieman. The final part will be out very soon, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's released. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the show, I'd love you to leave a rating and review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, special thanks to Warren Fay for use of the tunes you've been hearing. They come from his 2012 album, Australian Bush Orchestra. You can buy that and his other recordings at iTunes. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.